Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Megan. We're two moms with eight kids between us, from little to grown. We're in different areas of the country and in different stages of life. But we both know that motherhood's a lot easier when real moms share tips and encouragement. And remind you that it's really all going to be okay. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to the Mom Hour. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 234 of the Mom Hour. I'm Sarah Powers, here as always with Megan Francis. Hey, Megan. Hey, Sarah. So uh, as is often the case, some of our most fun episode ideas come from you, Megan. Um, And this idea you had a couple of weeks ago. So today we are talking about the mom myths or the truths that we hear tossed around, often by an older generation, would you say? But not always. (laughs) (laughs) They like to have opinions and things to say. Let's just say that. (laughs) And these things that we've all either come to assume are true or that others seem to suggest are true. And we thought it would be fun to go through a lot of them. And you all helped us on Instagram and in our Facebook group come up with some of the most common ones we hear and just talk about whether those held true for us and our combined eight kids. So this is going to be really fun. Great idea for an episode, Megan. Well, everyone, it's so funny. Like when I started and I can't remember which was the one that I threw at you first, but I think it was the one about like, um, I, I, I had heard at one point that odd numbered kids were easier than even numbered kids or something. And that popped into my head and I thought, what a ridiculous thing. (laughs) First of all, it's ridiculous. And secondly, I actually said that to people because it was true for me up to a point. Right. Actually, I think it was true for me all across the board. So someone said it to me once and I was like, oh, yeah, that's totally true. And then I remember saying it. And then I thought, how many of those kinds of truisms there are? And really, when you break it down, like, even if one is true for you, like, it's almost certainly not true for, for everyone, you know, everybody. So uh, I just thought this would be really fun. There's so many. There's of them. so many of them. And so we are going to get right in and go through them quick style after the break. You know, we hear from a lot of listeners who say they'd like to start a podcast, but it sounds really hard and time consuming. Well, it kind of was hard and time consuming <laughs> back when we got started, right? Yeah. Which is partly why it took us so long to figure out what we were doing. But we're really excited for this new generation of podcasters because things have gotten a lot easier. Yes, we are so excited to tell you about our sponsor, Messy.fm. Messy is an all-in-one podcasting solution. You don't have to download anything. You use it right in your browser window. And not only can you record, edit, and publish your show all in one place, but there's a tool you can use to create your cover art. And when you publish your show with Messy, it will be distributed to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify for free. You can also publish unlimited episodes for free. Did I mention a basic Messy membership is free? It is amazing. Honestly, it made us both wish we were just starting out now. When Molly, the founder of Messy and a mom of two, was showing us how it works, we had about half a dozen ideas for new podcasts that we want to launch just like on this Messy platform, just so we could use it. Seriously, though, podcasting is just going to continue to grow. So if you've been wanting to get in on it, now is the time. Again, the basic level is free, so there's no reason not to give it a shot. Just go to themomhour.com slash messy to create your free account, and you could start creating a podcast about your favorite TV show, your knitting obsession, or maybe something to support your career. Really, anything you want, you can start today. Again, that's themomhour.com slash messy. Megan, we're all about the cozy fall feels around here lately, even if we still have to pretend a little bit. And one of the ways the kids and I have been getting in the mood for fall is books and audiobooks from our sponsor, Epic. Epic is the leading digital library for kids 12 and under, and they are nurturing a love of reading and learning in millions of kids around the world. Yes, you might have seen our blog post roundup of cozy audiobooks for fall. So The Secret Garden is one of my all-time favorite fall reads, and we've been listening to it, and it just gives it such an extra layer 
when you get to hear those accents and everything else. It's I really love fun. those accents. Well, every book and video on Epic is handpicked by their expert team, which makes sure that kids are reading and learning in a safe, age-appropriate, kid-friendly environment. My kids are especially drawn to the nonfiction books, the stuff about animals and science experiments, that kind of thing. And it's so nice to have a practically limitless source for those at our fingertips. Epic works on a tablet or device, and each kid gets their own login and profile, all for one monthly subscription price. More than 10 million children have read more than 500 million books on Epic's platform, and we're going to get you started with two months free. Epic is normally $7.99 a month, which is a great deal. But if you use promo code MOMHOUR when you sign up for an Epic subscription at getepic.com, you'll get your first two months totally free. Again, that's getepic.com. Use promo code MOMHOUR when you sign up for a subscription and you'll get your first two months free. Okay, so when we asked you all in our Facebook group and on Instagram to help us come up with mom myths and these truisms that get floated around, um, definitely some themes emerged. So Megan, I thought it would be fun to just start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start with pregnancy and birth myths. And I'm going to throw some out. And I just want you to tell me with your kids if this was true or not. You ready? Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in pregnancy, the way that you carry, meaning like straightforward or kind of pointy, I think is supposed to mean it's going to be a boy. And then more round all the way around is supposed to be girl. First of all, is that the myth as you understand it? And was that true for you? I don't remember because no. (laughs) Like, I feel like I carried all five babies completely differently and it did not correspond to gender at all. So I'm same. So I, I actually carried them all fairly similarly. And I have two girls and a boy in the middle. I carry more round than pointy, although not so round. I, I'm kind of in the middle. I just said this was pretty round, round around and and also straight out. And it didn't really look like either extreme. So I would say they, I carried a little lower with each baby. Yeah. <laughs> but like it didn't know it like whether they were side to side or rounded or pointy or up and down, like it really made no difference. And you told it me that no- as you kept having boy after boy, these comments from people who kept trying to like see if maybe you might be having a girl because of the way you carried that it was hard. Yeah, it was really hard, actually, because um, ironically, up until I was pregnant with Clara, at which point I literally truly did not care what, you know, if she was a boy or a girl yeah. by that point, because at that point I was like, man, being a, mo- a mom of all these boys is awesome. And wouldn't it be cool to have five boys? And so I didn't care anymore. But up until then, I really hoped for a girl. And so every time people would feel the need to tell me because based on the way I was carrying that they were pretty sure I was having a girl and then I'd have my 20 week ultrasound. And again, it was not a girl like that was hard. It was hard to hear it. And sometimes even after I'd have the ultrasound and I knew it was a boy and I would tell people that I'd be like, I don't know. Oh gosh. I don't know the way you're carrying. (laughs) I'm like, okay. (laughs) Yep. So then you're an, uh, you're a technician of the mind. I guess you can Mm -hmm. just like, yeah. yeah, an extra. And you're going to overrule like exactly. the medical evidence over- <laughs> that I've just told you about the child exactly. I am carrying. Okay. Yes. What about personality in the womb? It translates to personality once they're born. Did this hold true? Like, did you have any wild, wild babies inside that proved wild on the outside? I mean, do babies have a personality in the oh, womb? I, think- I always found like, I, yes, they some moved more than others. Some kicked more than others. Some hiccuped a lot more than others. But I didn't actually ever find that. I didn't ever have one that was particularly like crazy. And it I don't remember yeah. that being a thing. Um, I remember actually being a little disturbed by how much a couple of them hiccuped. And I can't remember now. <laughs> I want to say that it was Clara and maybe William. And I thought these babies are just going to hiccup all the time. And they did not. Yeah. Interesting. Um, but yeah, no, no, I really do. I don't remember feeling a, like a, 
like an alignment there. Yeah. What about you? No, same. Agreed. It's just something I've heard tossed around. Like if you've got a really active baby inside, it's like, oh, watch out. They're going to be a soccer player. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you end up kicks. So then you didn't, did you notice then that some babies seemed to have a different personality I, on the inside? You know, so if you my, didn't notice the opposite. No, I mean, my first baby was breech and that's a very different feeling right, anybody yeah. who's carried a breech baby and she was in the breech not in the pike breech position but almost I describe it like a little Buddha like her legs were folded underneath her right down at the bottom and she was sitting straight up so I could put my hand on the top of her head at the end it's oh, really cute yeah. so there's a little less movement there because it's a, just a different position to be in and then with Violet my placenta was in the front I forget what they call that not not it wasn't dangerous or anything it was just the placement of it so I felt less movement or the the movement was more muted kind of even though I would have an ultrasound they would say how active she was so maybe that translates because she's my most active kid but I actually didn't feel it as much because of the placement so yeah they were each a little different but nothing that carried over it didn't translate and, and also like you're that's a really good point about placement size like yeah. I definitely had babies who elbowed me more yeah like but that doesn't mean they came out <laughs> throwing your you. elbows all yeah. over or elbow like coming up and just hit me in the face with an elbow just to do it. it I really always felt like it was more related to um, some some of them were more active in the morning or at night. Yeah. I didn't relate that to anything. It just seemed kind of like a, a crapshoot. Yeah. And I do think right when they're born, sometimes you can notice some patterns. Like, let's say they were always really active at night. I do think sometimes you can notice that may carry through, but not for their whole life. I wouldn't think. I mean, I don't know. Okay, what about um, sickness or nausea? Uh, it is often said that you're sicker with girls, and I was just sick with all three boys and boy and girls, so it didn't hold true for me. Did that? No. Yeah. I was sickest with Jacob the first and then became a little bit less sick with each baby. No, no. So that was something that came up in our Facebook group, actually, that people had heard that you're sickest with your first. And I had yeah. never heard that before, but that was true for you. Yeah, it was okay. true for me. I, I think my body was just getting used to the hormones. Yeah, like, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was notable. Like I threw up so much in my first pregnancy and maybe once when I was pregnant with Isaac, maybe twice. And then after that with William, it was just kind of like a low level. Ugh. Like uh -huh. I never threw up. I just felt kind of gross for like, I don't know, until 10 weeks or 12 weeks. And then with Owen and Clara, like I don't really remember it slowing me down too much. I have I'd have certain days where I'd feel a little ucky, but it just became kind of not a thing. So the answer so, here, people, yeah. is just keep have keep getting pregnant. Keep getting pregnant. <laughs> I was pretty I was very nauseous with all three. And I was I would say uh, sickest the third time because it just lasted the longest. I was I was round the clock nauseous yeah. for like 24 weeks. <laughs> yeah. If you just I'm, keep having babies, yeah. you won't be sick. And one of them will be a girl eventually. There you go. All the so myths are say. true. OK, <laughs> this one came up a ton and it's something I'd heard, but I'd forgotten about. And it is not true for me. And that is if you have heartburn in pregnancy, it means your baby has a full head of hair. Like what? I mean, is that a real no. thing? That seems like somebody who doesn't understand the mechanics <laughs> of pregnancy. But in our comments, <laughs> did you see that one came up a lot? And it's a very specific myth. It's not like. It, right. It, it, it's it not just really, doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And no, I had heartburn with all of my pregnancies and it was not related. Did any of them have full heads of hair? Like they all had full heads of hair. So maybe it is. Okay. I guess I proved it. It's true. So I only, <laughs> I had zero heartburn except for the last time. So I only ex experienced heartburn once and all of my babies had like, they had a normal amount of baby hair. They weren't super bald, but they also didn't have that hair where you're like taking oh, pictures like the of amazing it. Yeah. Baby hair. No, yeah. none of mine had that yeah. either. They just all had baby hair. 
So. Yeah, like my and all my babies had dark hair at birth, except for maybe Owen. His might have been light. So it was just normal. Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah. Like some babies have that shock of hair yeah. and it's amazing. None of mine had that. Yeah. And it I definitely was not correlated to heartburn. OK, what about first babies come late? Jacob came 10 days early and he was the only baby of mine who was early. Interesting. OK, totally so no, not true for in you. In my case, not the case. Uh, what about you? Um, so I had a scheduled C-section because of oh, a right. breech baby. I think she would have been really late, though. My body was not. I, she was born at 39 weeks, two days, and there was nothing happening. And I actually think all of my babies would have been late. I, they were all planned C-sections. And by the by the third kid, the doctor was like, I think we can schedule you for like 39 and five because I don't think you're at risk of right. going into labor. And I did. I had a scheduled C-section at 39 weeks, five days the last time and nothing was happening. So I don't think it was a first baby thing. I just think I would have been one of those 42 week pregnant people. Um, I actually think it's weird that my first, I almost wonder sometimes if my, if, if we got the dates a little bit wrong mm. for Jacob, um, I don't think he was late for sure. Cause he was small. He was yeah. on the small side. So he was eight pounds, nine ounces, <laughs> That's small, eight pounds, nine uh, ounces. Yeah. That was one of my smaller oh my babies. Gosh. And then, and then Isaac was like two weeks late. And nine pounds, 12 ounces. Oh my God. And then William was born right on the day. Like he was born the night, the day, sorry, the day after his due date. Uh -huh. um, he was eight, eight. Um, so a little delicate thing. And then <laughs> Owen was two weeks late and he was 10 pounds, two ounces. Oh my gosh. I knew and about then, that. I knew. Yeah. And then Clara was born, I believe, either the night before her due date or on her due date. Like really, I think it was the night before her due date. Um, and she was eight, six. So like there was no, the size definitely size did correlate and, yeah. to lateness, but nothing else. Like, Not the first. And yeah. it was back and forth and back and forth. Yeah. And yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. Well then this is related because another myth is that babies get bigger each time and come faster each time. So without telling all five birth stories, would that have held true for you? I mean, obviously the size mm. didn't, they were up and down in size. It started to trend in that direction, um, but Clara's labor was pretty slow, actually. Okay. It just, it kind of kicked on and kicked off. Like, uh, Jacob was like, you know, a day, like a full day, like a 24-hour thing. Mm -hmm. Isaac was like four hours. William was like three hours. Owen was like three to four hours. So they, those three kind of all yeah, stayed in that, in that range. And then Clara was one of those where labor kind of got started and then stalled out a little bit. So she was probably a total of eight hours, but only like, two of those were yeah. active labor. So it's hard to say, you know, it definitely from this is obviously there's some probably science that goes into uh, the, the coming faster each time. Right. I mean, it's it's a maybe it's a myth or an old wives tale, but also it, it does make sense that your body would more efficiently do what it needs to do, yes. except that's not allowing for all the various things that can happen. Like you said, labor stalling out or water breaking or not water breaking. So mm -hmm. it can't possibly hold true all of the time. Um, right. In terms of size, I know like the family I grew up in, we did get bigger each time. And my mom, that was a myth that my mom definitely like seemed to believe was true. Mine were all really close in size, but they didn't get bigger. They just, they kind of it was seven two, six fifteen, and seven four. They just, but they were yeah. all right around the same size. So um, yeah. And I think with the, with the, um, length of time in labor, I think that's because we have so, like such a misunderstanding about what it means to be in labor. Mm, yeah. um, and often we think we're like in labor for all these hours when really we're kind of like in pre-labor sure. or really early labor. I think if you went and if there was a way to like clock the exact moment throughout your pregnancies and not you, since you didn't go yeah. through that, but like someone had gone through, say they had a sample size of five 
And if you could say this is the moment that you went into active labor as mm-hmm. defined by, you know, dilation and all that. Yeah. How long did that window happen? I bet for me, it did get shorter and shorter. Yeah, it's that makes that sense. I don't know exactly when that happened. Sure. You know, and this like, yeah. And the circumstances yeah. are so different. Exactly. Um, okay. Last one in pregnancy and birth. And this came up two or three times. And I thought it was an interesting thing. I'm not sure it's a myth, but it is something that gets passed around. And that is when the first time you see your baby, this love and nurture instinct is going to kick in and everything after that just comes naturally. Um, I think that is something that new moms are told. And hopefully um, we have enough people around us to represent the bonding attachment experience with a little bit uh, more nuance than that. But yeah, multiple moms in our community said that that was hard because they were told you're going to fall immediately in love like you've never felt before and breastfeeding is going to be natural and this bond will be immediate and instinctual. Um, and I just don't think that that happens the same for all people in no, all ways. And, you know, it's funny. Um, people will talk about that moment like that they were handed their newborn baby and they realized that like life had had no meaning before. Right. And um, and that now it all came into clear focus and they felt this you know great responsibility and like all this stuff. For me, I think the natural part was knowing that this was a thing I had made and that I would now take care of it. Like that, like it was, so here's this human, you have made this human, this human is yours to care for. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Almost okay. like a protective instinct. Yeah, more than but a- I wouldn't, it, w- it didn't feel like love to me. Yeah. It's a different feeling. And I don't remember being disappointed by that or even really expecting that because I think what I did feel felt right. Like, mm-hmm. oh, this is a little person and this person really needs me. Yeah. Cool. I guess I'm in, but it wasn't, <laughs> you know, I guess I'll do that. But there were still, I was still felt alienated yeah. for my babies for the, like, you, you know, that feeling when you have just had a baby and you wake up and you're like, oh, that, like that person is mine. Yeah. Like, like you're just getting to know them. Yeah. Um, it's like that unveiling. It takes a while. It does I take found. a while. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Ag- agreed. And the experience is so different. And the postpartum hormones and the postpartum experience is so different for so many people that I think it's just helpful to allow for many, like any, any, any kind experience of reality is okay. And yeah. Um, okay. So I have a few with babies and toddlers. Um, so we're going to move on. And this is the one I think that you actually had the idea with, and that is hard baby equals easy toddler or hard or easy baby is going to mean hard toddler. And in our community, there were all kinds of versions of this, like easy kid equals a hard teenager. Somehow that like, it's going to even out if you have an easy time. Oh, even easy pregnancy equals hard baby. Like, so maybe talk through like what, what version of this myth did you think was true or was given to you? And did it hold true? So, and I know we're going to talk about birth order and stuff later yeah. and odd and even numbers and stuff like that. To me, it did feel like it went hard, easy, hard, easy, hard, or sorry for me, it was easy, hard, easy, hard, easy. You know what I'm uh-huh. saying? So, and it also felt like my kids were hard, baby, easy toddler. Okay. But looking back, um, I think that's because when you have an, an easy baby, who then becomes a toddler, it feels hard. <gasps> yes, that's so true. And then when you have an easy... So, for example, the reason my hard babies were hard, um, and that would be Owen and Isaac, was because they cried a lot. Mm-hmm. They were very sensitive. They were frustrated. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of things that made them hard babies that when they suddenly could move around, it, it felt like a relief to me. Like, mm-hmm. I got a little bit of a break. They were just as hard yeah. as my easy babies, who were kind of content and, like... 
And then those babies became kind of easy toddlers who now I had to pay attention to because they were into everything, but they were just normal. If that makes sense. Like, Mm -hmm. so I think the hard and easy thing can be true, but sometimes it's your perception of the next stage that is what you're reacting. Yes. To. And the relative change that that individual right. is going through. And I also think that when you have a first baby, the tra- every trans, every change is so magnified because you've never met this stage of kid before and you have nothing to compare it to. So like right. an easy baby who becomes any kind of a toddler will feel hard. Right. Um, or even a moderate baby who becomes a toddler right. because toddlers are hard. Yeah. I don't think this held true for me. I think most of my kids' personalities I've been able to kind of see the through line um, with maybe the exception of Reed, who was a very happy. He was not a good nighttime sleeper, but he was a very happy baby. And then he was a really intense toddler and preschooler. So maybe once there was that kind of easy baby hard. But other than that, I, you know, I have another kid who was easy almost the whole time and another one who was hard almost the whole time. So I, I'm going to say not really for me on this one. Um, okay. What about all babies look like their dad when they're new because of evolution? Have you heard this? Yes, I have. And for me, it's been true every time. Okay. That's interesting. Um, I want to say it's probably be probably because of John's features are just stronger than mine Uh and his coloring is darker than mine and his eyebrows and nose, everything, like everything's more defined. And so any, any features that look like him probably to me just stood out. Mm -hmm. but I mean, it makes sense. Like it, from an yeah. evolutionary standpoint, it makes sense. But it, it does. And yeah. I, I definitely bought into this. Um, my first baby, people said, I never truly saw the resemblance, but people said she looked like her dad when she was a baby. And she looks like we get stopped on the street because we look so much alike right now. But that didn't mm-hmm. happen until she was six or seven years old and kind of leaned out and didn't look so round anymore. Um, but my other two kids, they actually tend more after my side of the family except Reed now looks like Brian, but he didn't when he was a baby. Like it just, it just really changes. So I definitely had heard it and I definitely, it makes sense. I'm not sure it was totally true except for maybe the first time for us. Yeah. I mean, that makes a certain amount of sense. And I just, I don't think I have the kind of features that translate to babies very much. Like when none of my babies really looked a lot like me, Yeah, I don't think. Um, Clara now I think does look like me, but it's not you don't look at her and say, oh, wow, she's really got your check, like mm-hmm. fill in the blank. Like she's got dark hair. Um, it's just just very different. She's like a very different looking child for me. But something about her yeah. resembles me. And I don't know what it is. Well, I don't there's know some dimples. Features. There's some dimples happening in your kids. That's and true. you have beautiful dimples. And I do think that you, I see the resemblance of a lot of your kids and you. But I hear what you're saying about just John's features. And sometimes that's kind of the more noticeable is what people, what people notice. Yes. And my kids also all have freckles and I have freckles, not all of them, but they all have some freckles and the Clara and Owen actually have kind of a lot of little smattering of freckles across their nose, which makes me really happy. I love that. I love that. Um, Okay. I'm skipping around a little bit in our outline, but we have to discuss this one. It came up a few different times in a few different ways. And this is when people tell you, just let the baby skip their nap or keep them up or run them around like crazy and they'll sleep better and they'll sleep in tomorrow. This is like a classic. I think um, people giving this advice have forgotten. It's not that like, it's not that times change. It's just literally that they forgot how it works. And that tends not to be true. 
Like letting your kids skip naps and stay up late does not always mean they're going to sleep better or sleep in. Nope. I tried it. Yeah. Those of you listening who are like, well, duh, we all know that. But somewhere in the somewhere in the generational divide, people forget this. And then I think it just feels when you're like a tired mom or a mom trying to stick to some kind of a nap schedule, it can feel so insulting to have someone be like, well, you know what you should do? Have you thought of just not putting them down for bed? And you're like, uh, if I, if that was the solution, wouldn't that be easiest? Like, wouldn't right. I wouldn't already I have be done doing that? that? So right. yeah, that is, um, that is something that happens. And yeah, in my experience also, also not true. Although here's something else to say about sleep myths. Um, when you read the sleep books and you listen to the experts, the, the presiding feeling right now is that sleep begets sleep, meaning a well-rested baby who's getting their naps during the day will also sleep better at night. And I think probably scientifically, that's probably true. I know as adults, if we're overwired, it's hard for us to settle down. So sure, there's definitely truth to that. But I also think that we can lean in so hard on that, that um, at least I I did back in the day, that you're almost like you're hoping on the good nighttime sleep because you're lining up all of these perfect naps. And I have also had babies who were perfectly well-rested from a very healthy nap scheduled during the day who still didn't sleep at night. So sleep begets sleep can almost become its own myth because it's not also going to guarantee you a great nighttime sleeper. Some kids just aren't. I think that what I'm hearing from this and my experience is that people really like to generalize about sleep yeah. and they like things to be truer than they are. Yes. <laughs> so, um, I, I mean, I remember stressing and I didn't stress about sleep that much, even though I had a couple really bad sleepers. I think I just kind of like gritted my teeth and got through it however I could. So I don't remember there being a tons of stress, but I do remember thinking things like, if the baby falls asleep in the car for 10 minutes, does that mean the rest of the day is shot? Or if it's less than, if it's five minutes and they don't fall into a deep sleep, does that mean the sleep patterns are off? Or like, like all these mental gymnastics. And then sometimes it would matter a whole bunch and sometimes it didn't matter at all. And I think almost every sleep truism is at some point a myth. And Mm -hmm. it's like, we don't want it to be because it's so important to us, but like, it still is you well, know, yeah. at some point or with some kid. And exactly. And you're, what you're doing is you're sort of myth busting and creating truisms for your own individual kid. And unfortunately, they just don't apply to right. any other kid. So it's like a it's just so unique every time. Um, OK, I have one that did prove true for me, and I think it's an interesting one. And that is that somebody brought this up, that if you have early talkers, they will be late walkers or vice versa, that it, when we're looking at gross motor and verbal, say from your, for your like one-year-old, when both of those things tend to come up, um, that the kid will focus on or kind of be advanced in one area and not the other. And for my kids, that was true. Although I have a very good friend who had these freakishly early walkers and talkers. And so I've seen it, I've seen it, you know, work out differently. But for mine, all three of my kids were very verbal early and pretty late to walk. They were like 15 so month how, walkers. Okay, 15 yeah. 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 Like 15, like st- taking a few steps at 13 or 14 months, but not truly walking across the room till 15. I don't think any of them were later than 15, but yeah. I mean, for me, I had one ridiculously early verbal kid. That was Isaac. Like he was speaking in full sentences when he was like a year old. It was really weird. (laughs) Um, and William, I remember people calling him freaky William because he stood up when he was seven months old and took a step. It was the weirdest thing. Then he didn't do it again. Like he he did it once. And then I think he was like, meh. Um, but we were like in a play group and he just stands up, like holds us like with his little hands against a 
the edge of a toy bin. Oh my gosh. And then took a step oh and my all gosh. the moms are just looking at him with their mouths dropped. And then that was, the I love that everybody saw that. it though. Cause sometimes yes. you're the only one and you're like, I swear this just happened. <laughs> yeah. So he was called, he was nicknamed freaky William, but then like all of them were relatively early talkers and moderately early walkers, but none of the rest of them. And I don't remember Isaac walking super late. He just, he didn't walk super early. He yeah. might've been 13 months. Yeah. Um, I think Clara was the latest walker. She was probably 14 or 15 months, maybe, maybe 13 or 14. I have a video of her walking with a little shopping cart and she couldn't have been more than, I don't know, around a year old. But um, I don't think she was very motivated yeah. to walk because she had older siblings literally carrying her everywhere. Well, when she also, sorry, I was going to say, she also wasn't one of those kids who seems to want to get into stuff or like mm-hmm. get around. Mm-hmm. She was very happy to just have things given to her to play with. Yeah. No, so. and I think what is true about this is um, kids will work on different developmental skills in like bursts, like fits and starts. Yes. So you will have a kid who seems like they're not interested in talking because they are mastering like crawling, standing, cruising, walking. Right. And then yep. all of a sudden, like the verbal will click in and kind of it'll, then it'll accelerate. So I think that part is normal. And then maybe just saying that these are the two extremes walking and talking are kind of like two really obvious um, ones, but there's a million other milestones too. And I do think kids tend to kind of concentrate on one and then move on to the other. It's, it's not all happening at the same time. Well, and let's also remember that things like that we don't necessarily chalk up to being skills, um, but like sleeping, like yeah. when, when a baby is about to transition or like learn a new skill or, or a new milestone or uh, whatever they're doing, often their sleep goes to yeah. crap because mm-hmm. sleeping takes energy and it's a skill yeah. and it's something they're working on. So like, uh, you know, yes, that definitely, it doesn't seem like any one of my kids were working on everything at once. Right. Right. For sure. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to go to a break and we'll be back in just a minute with more mom myths and mom truths. We're welcoming back Stitch Fix as a sponsor today. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that delivers clothing, shoes, and accessories directly to you. When you sign up, you take a really fun quiz and then a professional stylist chooses just the right pieces for you. You'll get a box with those handpicked items delivered to your door and then you can decide what you'd like to keep and what you want to send back. There's a $20 styling fee and that gets automatically applied toward any pieces you decide to keep, which honestly, there's almost always at least one thing that you've just got to keep. Yeah, we both got to try Stitch Fix recently. And Sarah, like you, I loved the jeans in my box, but I also loved that they sent a pair of earrings and a scarf that was just my style. My typical outfits are pretty same, same from day to day. So I really rely on accessories to dress things up or down or just create a new look. So that was a really nice bonus. Accessories are one of those things sometimes we don't buy ourselves too. So it helps to have somebody pick it out for you. So you can ask Stitch Fix to send you things like accessories, shoes, and boots. And you can even tell them never to send you things you don't want, like super high heels. After you get your fix, they ask for detailed feedback on what you liked and what you didn't so they can fine-tune future shipments and really tailor them to your style and needs. If you've been wanting to try Stitch Fix, of course you have. Here's your chance because we have a great deal for you. Just go to stitchfix.com slash themomhour and get an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash themomhour for an extra 25% off when you keep everything in your box. We are welcoming back the University of California, Irvine and their Division of Continuing Education as a sponsor today. We love this program because anything that gives moms opportunities to grow their skills and further their careers in a flexible way gets an A plus in our book. 
Yeah, UCI's Division of Continuing Education enrolls more than 30,000 students worldwide each year, many of whom are pursuing coursework online from home in areas like business, marketing, education, and healthcare. Courses are taught by industry practitioners with real-world experience in the subject matter that they teach, and even when you enroll online, you get that real immersive classroom experience and collaboration opportunities with your peers. They've got certificate programs as well as specialized studies programs, and you can advance your career in as little as six months. We're heading into the holiday season and starting to focus on giving gifts to others, but if you've been thinking about heading back to school or have big career goals for 2020, this is a great time to look at UCI's Division of Continuing Education. Visit ce.uci.edu slash momhour and enter the promo code THEMOMHOUR for 15% off one course. Again, that's ce.uci.edu slash momhour and use the promo code THEMOMHOUR to get 15% off one course. This offer is only valid till December 31st, 2019 at 11.59 p.m. Okay, so Megan, a huge category that emerged when we talked to our listeners about this topic was myths or truisms around boys and girls. And this could honestly be a whole episode. Um, It's something that I, having two girls and a boy, all of whom have kind of not really fit the typical myths about boy-girl stuff so far, it's something that I'm very aware of when people say things like all boys are this way or Mm -hmm. all girls are this way. Because I think what I have found over the years is even if some of that is maybe backed with a little bit of science or a little bit of psychology, and maybe there's a little bit of truth to where that came from, it's almost never helpful. Like it almost isn't like, it doesn't matter. So I find myself, I'm just fully admitting this is like a, a bias that I have. It's it makes me uncomfortable and often irritated when I hear um, gender-based comments about this is always the way it is. Boys right. are more this way. Girls well, are more this way. Generalizations are never really very helpful. Right. Regardless of what they're about. Right. So. Exactly. Yeah. And, and because you're, you know, it, it's like, oh, you have a boy or you have a girl. It's going, this child is going to be one of these characteristics is then you kind of feel like they're, they either match or they don't. Yes. <laughs> like, it's just kind of a weird, it is a weird thing that we do. It is. And, and I think um, we today have more awareness about this, but I still think it is so pervasive. One of my yes. least favorite comments is, oh, he is all boy. I'm like, <laughs> wait, I don't, I don't even know what that, what does that, mean? what does that mean? And what does it mean about the boy next to him that isn't all boy? It's just very, right. it's very confusing to me. And it's, it's just something that's still very common. So we're, we're going down this road of like a lot of the myths that our listeners brought up are based around these gender stereotypes. You and I are kind of like eh, gender stereotypes aren't helpful. However, I think it still will be interesting to look at some of these through the lens of our own experience and see if they held true. Yeah. Sound good. Okay. Sounds fun. Let's do it. Um, boys are mama's boys and girls are daddy's girls. Okay. So I only have one girl. Um, but I would say in my case, I think that all of my boys and girls have been equally mamas and daddies, mm-hmm. depending on their age and what they were interested in. And sometimes both at once. Yes. So I, that has not held true for me either way. Like you could even flip it and it still wouldn't be true. Yes. I'm same. Same. Yeah. Um, my youngest is definitely like tied to the hip. No, that's not the joined at the hip with me tied to the hip. Um, so, and she is a girl. My only boy is very, very close to his dad. I, 
I kind of get where this sentiment is coming from. I, I think it's sort of artificially imposed a lot of the time or we or we look for what we want to be that it's true. wishful thinking. Yeah. It's like that. It's like that whole idea that you're, you know, your son, you're his first love and mm-hmm. like, yeah. they'll never go away from you when they grow up. And I just think that's a lot of romanticizing. Yes. That we hope will, I guess, keep us closer to them when they get older. I don't really I know don't. what it's about. I don't um, either. It's, I don't feel threatened by my kids' relationships with any other adults, especially not their fathers. So like, right. I would find that really weird to feel, you know, possessive about that. Nor will you feel threatened by mature adult relationships that they will someday have with like a loving partner, right? Like, isn't that what we want? Yes. I I also find it a little, a little bit strange. Now I'll say this, it's very normal for kids to have parent preferences. And if you told me that your daughter is a total daddy's girl, I don't think that in and of itself is gross to me. It's the assumption that all girls are daddy's girls. Cause I do think there are, there are times when a parent child has a special bond because their personalities are very similar or they've just created that special bond. That's not what I'm, that's fine. It's just yeah. the assumption that it's gender-based and that all girls are daddy's girls and all boys are mama's boys. And then like you said, the implication is that it's somehow like, I don't know, so that they can be your boyfriend forever. Right, it's like. weird. I also think there's, there maybe there's something to one parent being more of the hands-on nurturing parent who just gets the lion's share of that back from their kids. And then maybe we, conflate that um, when it's the opposite gender that there is doing it. So for example, I think mm. in my house, I was just like the hugger and the snuggler. That was just more yeah. of my thing, I guess. Um, not to say that John's not huggy and snuggly. It just like played out a little bit differently. And so I remember this with a few of my boys in particular, just how into me they were like, just like touching, like couldn't, you know, couldn't get enough. And, you know, like the joke about little kids with their hands down their mom's yeah. cleavage. And yeah. there is something really funny when that's a little boy that yeah. does that. <laughs> um, but I just stumbled across an, a blog post I wrote maybe for it might have been for the happiest home. I can't remember, like when Clara was like three or four uh-huh. and how weird she was with me. Like she she would smell me like she would climb up on my lap and sniff me. And like rub her face against me. That was and when stuff. I was working for you. And I definitely remember stories of how attached to you Clara was. Yes. Yeah. So it definitely, you know, I think because she was my daughter, it was like, oh, she's doing this because she's my girl and yeah. she's my only girl. But the boys all did it in their own way yeah. too. Like they're, they were all weird, weirdly attached to me, which yes. is cool. Yes. It's all, um, it's all yeah. good. <laughs> it's all good. Yes. Um, okay. We heard this one a lot and, and I am curious if there's maybe some like child psychology lurking, some truth lurking in the background here, but it's that boys are harder as, uh, little kids, toddlers, preschoolers, whatever. And girls are harder as tweens and teens. And by harder, I mean, harder to parent more tantrums, more drama, like more, um, resistance or like behavior issues is what, what people mean when they say this. Um, I don't know if that's proved true for you. I mean, you have a sample size of four boys, one girl, and your daughter's not quite teen yet, but she's certainly yeah. a tween. Um, I would say overall, my boys have been rowdier as toddlers. Mm-hmm. So it's like one thing that I think is important is like what whatever we define as hard is, mm-hmm. is diff- going to be different, right? So for me, um, emotionally hard is easier to deal with than physically hard. Mm-hmm. Like physically hard exhausted me. And so with boys, I felt like there was always fighting, always like um, wrestling, always rolling around, couldn't sit still, were very hard to entertain for very long. Like that was definitely more true for the majority of my boys. Um, 
And Clara, I remember the time, I think I've talked about this before, where I had a Halloween party and I decided <laughs> yes. to let her play on an iPad. She usually didn't get to do. And I put Blue's Clues or something on the iPad and handed it to her. And then through the entire party, and I was like, a couple hours in, I was like, has anyone seen Clara? And she was like 18 months old and had not left my bed, was just sitting on my bed yeah. watching Blue's Clues. And I remember thinking like, that would never yeah. have happened with any of the boys, even the chiller of the boys. So yeah, and now I'm starting. I also think uh, Clara's starting to get a little bit of an attitude about stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's hard not to take it personally because she's my daughter. And I've been so culturally... uh what's the word indoctrinated to think that she's going to hate me mm -hmm. that, you know, we were sitting in church the other day and she was jiggling her leg a lot. And I just kind of kept placing my hand on her knee to make mm -hmm. her stop jiggling. And she just like, like not even brushed my hand off. It was like, she threw <laughs> my hand off of her. And I was like, and this little part of me thought, Oh, well, here, here it goes. Like, here we are. Here we go. Like, she's going to hate me and we're going to fight. And I, I don't, I'm trying not to go there because yeah. I don't know that that's true. Yeah. You know, and, the boys would have done that too. I just probably wouldn't have cared. Right. You know? Right. So I don't know. You've got your, your kids aren't, well, you've got Allegra. I, yeah. I have one true tween and really like almost developmentally a teen. Um, but I, I think, okay. So one thought I have about this that I'm not sure if this is gendered or where this comes from, but girls being difficult in tween and teen years feels to me a little bit unfairly loaded, like against girls, like girls are having, emotions and hormones and puberty and changing relationships. And so are boys and the yeah. way that it manifests for girls relationally, if, if that's the case, again, I'm not, I'm not a child psychologist, but just from what I know, feels like a little bit of an unfair comment. Like boys also go through those things. First of all, they go through right. them a little bit later. So maybe by the time they go through them, the maturity, like, or something is different, but also it just manifests differently. So it feels like unfair to almost, um, like make this big deal out of girl tween and teen angst. When in fact, boys go through a lot too. It just maybe, maybe manifests differently. It can manifest in different behaviors. I don't know. Uh, rowdiness. Yeah. I mean, I have seen that, but not with my kids. So my rowdiest kid is a girl and my boy was a quiet, physically quiet preschooler. He was a difficult, like emotionally difficult preschooler, but physically. So like none of this really works in my family, but I'm, that's not to say it's, I mean, I think that again, there, there might be some reasons why this myth has perpetuated. It just is not what I've seen. And I think that if, if my girl, if my daughter as a teen is, if that relationship is harder for me, I think a lot of it's going to be my expectations of what mm -hmm. a mother daughter yes. relationship should look like and how I want it to look especially with her being the youngest. Right. Um, the boys being teenagers didn't really bother me. Like yeah. they we really didn't. I mean, and I've got two, they're coming up and I mean, they're particularly funny, Owen and Will about their teenagerness and they'll talk about it a lot, how ragey they are and angry and grumpy. And so it's kind of just out in the, it's out in the open. Yeah. Um, but I don't take any of it personally. I think with Clara, I might take it more mm -hmm. personally. And, and, and that's maybe, on me. And maybe that is what, people mean when it's yeah. the expectation of sweet girls that when they're right. not sweet. And I guess my, my pushback on that is that's our expectation problem, not the girl's problem. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. What about this one? Boys are easy, are harder to potty train than girls. Mildly, maybe like maybe a few months difference. Was, not, were some of your boys harder to potty train than others? You have a large sample size. They all just took size. a long time. Yeah. They all just took a long time. And they, um, at least I think I want to say three of my boys 
but definitely two would not poop in the potty for a really long time. Like mm-hmm. would poop in a pull up yeah. or a diaper. They would bring it to me mm-hmm. and have me put it in the Clara didn't do that. But I wouldn't say that the difficulty of like getting them to pee on the potty was really much different. Yeah. Um, in a lot of ways, like one thing with about the boys is they still don't seem to care about <laughs> getting in the toilet consistently. Some are worse than others. And I remember that being really bad. Like I remember the two boys, like the two oldest and then the two, the second group peeing at the same time. And then the streams would cross and bounce <laughs> and splash everywhere. I caught both sets of boys doing that on more than one occasion because they were just so lazy. Apparently they couldn't wait. They were like so into whatever they were doing. They would go to the bathroom together and pee on each other's pee. It was really, really weird. And so they had more problematic bathroom behavior. I would say the boys, uh-huh. but like, as far as just getting them to use it now, I don't remember that being so consistently harder at the boys. This was true for me. My sample size is very small. I have one boy and two girls. He was harder to potty train, but it was not for the reason that you read and hear a lot about. And that's this other myth, which is that boys are less communicative or are later to be verbal because my boy, well, all my kids were very verbal, but he was the most verbal. So it had nothing to do with ability to communicate his needs. He was speaking in, like you said, with Isaac, full sentences, full ability to have a conversation and not just that, but a very mature understanding of how the world worked, how like the passage of time. He just was like a, like a little man. And yet he was over three, just over three. And we tried a couple of times, failed, um, and so he was definitely the hardest to potty train, but not for the reasons that I had heard, which is, you know, boys are less mature or not less communicative. That wasn't the case, but it was other things. And he and the girls were both two. They were both in the twos, like two and a half. Um, and yeah. I approached it differently, definitely differently the first time and the last time. But either way, they were easier. So that one held true for me. Yeah. And who knows, like, had you had another boy? Right. It might have been the opposite. That's right. the thing. Like, everyone's only got their sample size of X. Right. <laughs> Which is why, many. like, coming full yeah. circle, these these myths or these generalizations don't really help if it's just your your experience and what you've heard. It's not super right. helpful to the person who's dealing with a completely opposite set of kids. So. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up and this is a little bit of like a little bit of a miscellany category, but a lot of it has to do with um, kind of birth order and family makeup. And then this category I'm calling just you wait, because we got a lot of this from our <laughs> listeners like, oh, you think it's hard now? Just you wait, um, right. which I've decided is just an obnoxious thing. I hope I never say that to anyone. Um, but here's one. And this is one that is a hot topic in my house. And that is third born children are super mellow and chill. Now, I believe this is true for you, right? Well, it certainly was William. That was his name was yeah. Chill Will. Yeah. Chilliam. We actually Chilliam. called him for a while when he was little. He was the first baby I had who would lay on his back and stare at the ceiling for like an extended period of time. And I would just stare at him thinking, aren't you going to cry? Yeah. Are you going to cry? Are you going to get restless? Do you need just, me? No. Do you need, do you need anything? <laughs> he was the baby who slept too much. Yeah. That I woke up from naps because I was worried he was sleeping too much. So he's still pretty chill. Yeah. Like he really never outgrew that. Um, he's been different in a lot of ways. He was my least snuggly, which is also odd. Like he was just less intense in every possible way. Uh-huh. 
So and yeah. my third is more intense in all of the possible in all ways. of the ways. Um, right. So I think the reason that you hear this is, first of all, people hope that it's true because they're about to be outnumbered right. and having a third kid. <laughs> right. So they perpetuate this myth to make themselves feel better. But I do think a lot of third kids are they have to be more flexible because they're being, yes. you know, they're being, you know, bopped around and they have older brothers and sisters. And so they. Uh, I will say my third child is uh, scrappy and worldly and um, kind of understands how the world works and in a weird way is very, very self-sufficient and independent. So that I will say for her, like doing things by herself and for herself. um, And I think you've said this about Clara too, just like she's not afraid to like, she's mature in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, But, but chill is not the word I would use to describe because she's the most emotionally intense, the most physically rowdy. So I did not get a a chill third kid, but I I do see where that's coming from and, and why that would be. And I also think that I have probably been guilty over the years of telling people about to have their third baby. Uh, You know, they, you know what they say, third babies are easy. And I think I do it because like, I never mind keeping optimism on someone's plate when they're feeling like they're heading, like either it's going to be true or it's not, and they're going to know soon enough, right? right? So maybe I'm like, maybe right. that's wrong. Yes, of you're, me. I know you're doing yeah. it in a like in an encouraging way. I think, that's and I al- and I also think sometimes our interpretation of whether our babies are chill or not is kind of where we're at as yeah. well. So sometimes I wonder if third babies seem chill because mom is done, or yeah. mom is yeah. just, or nothing surprises you anymore, yes. or whatever. It's more perception than reality. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Well, we also heard uh, from a lot of people, the myth that firstborns are easier or more compliant, more, um, you know, kind of do as they're told, less pushback. And then we had some people who expressed dismay that this was not the case (laughs) when they, you know, they expected that they expected and maybe easy is the wrong word, but like a a kind of rule following firstborn. I will say this is true for me. This this one holds true in my family, uh, my firstborn. But um, what about you? I think in at, as a baby, Jacob was very easy to parent. I wouldn't say the easiest. Mm-hmm. Probably Clara. Well, Clara and Will were both pretty easy as well. Um, but I also had my hands completely free. Mm-hmm. Like everything was new and it was fun. Like I really liked, I, I had trouble um, getting uh, William, sorry, Jacob. Jeez, I have so many kids. <laughs> I had a hard time getting Jacob to latch on when he was a baby. And I remember actually finding like pumping and tracking how much milk and stuff. Like I found that fun. Like I found sleep schedules fun yeah. when he was little. Cause he was, it was like a new project. It yeah. was the first time I'd done it. And so I think he was pretty naturally chill, but also I was just eager. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that added to it. Right. And, and not eager, like in a stressed way, just eager. Like yeah. I was into it. You were, yeah. you were all in on. Yes. Yes. Parenting. I think and it's. Then, and then my interest waned. Right. And then you're like, oh, it's really not <laughs> that important. With each subsequent kid, I got a little less, a little less into well, it. Well, just like anytime we discuss birth order, it's like, it's impossible to separate the, the individual personality of that kid and how they were always going to be no matter what with who you are and your available right. time and resources as a mom, like it's all mixed together. And that's why yep. I think birth order is really fascinating, but yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Um, okay. So tell me about this odd. Okay. Odd ages are easy. Even ages are hard or odd kids are easy and, odd, and even kids are hard or both. Which one I've of these heard, had you? I have heard both. Okay. Um, I have heard that. Wait. I've definitely heard that odd kids, odd numbered child, not, not odd children. Like they're just strange. I don't, I can't say for sure whether they're easier or not, even though I have a couple. Um, 
Odd-numbered children, I have heard, are easier. And okay. I've also heard that even ages are harder. Although I feel like at times I've, had, I've heard that flipped. Another thing I heard said by like several people with conviction, like they really meant it, is that the second half of the year is always harder. Oh, that's first. fascinating. Now that actually has kind of held true for me. So I'll just go really quickly through. Yeah. Um, odd ages or odd numbered kids in my experience in my life have been the easier ones, but I know that's not true okay. for everybody. And also define easy, like yeah. easy when they're babies is different than easy when they're transitioning into life as a grown man or whatever. Sure. So um, those sometimes flip. Um, I have not noticed a difference between like a two-year-old being easier than a three-year-old across the board, you know, compared to a four-year-old versus right. a five. I haven't seen that. But the second half of the year thing, when someone said that to me once, I was like, wow, that really, it's almost like they're ready to move on to the next year or something. And I have really kind of noticed that to be somewhat true. And have you, okay, so I'm thinking about this because of course it's not the second half of the calendar year. It's not like June to December. It's their individual, you know, whenever their birthday is. So it's the second half of them in that age. And have you noticed this? throughout all ages or more when they were little, when each half year is such a big, you know, a big growth step. I think I noticed it more in the school years, like okay. five to 10 maybe okay. was when I was really paying attention because that was when behavioral things would really throw me for a loop. Like, I feel like when a kid is like a baby or a toddler or a preschooler, I was just expecting it all the time. Yeah. Like I was always expecting them to be rotten in some way and for me to have to deal just to be honest. Yeah. And then they get in the butter zone. Like they kind of get into that five, six, seven where they can do things for themselves. They're a little more independent. They're, you know, their sleep has kind of evened out and all that. And then it would hit me like a ton of bricks when suddenly there seemed to be some regression happening or suddenly they weren't really trying at school or they were arguing and bickering with their brothers or something like that. And in my house, everyone would seem to turn like rabid at the same time. Because they all have they fall had all, birthdays. <laughs> yes, they all had fall birthdays. And I really started to think either it's one of them and the one is affecting everybody else or there's something to this. Okay, that's real. I will have, so, to, I will have to think about this with my own kids. I, one thing I know, and I have totally been guilty of telling other moms this as if it's true for everyone, is that I truly believe 18 to 24 months is this crazy witching age where yes. it's and and people freak out because they think, oh, it's not the terrible twos yet. They're still only right. one. And I have gone around swearing that 18 to 24 months is the pits. It's mm-hmm. just really, really hard on the kid and the parent. And you, you're like limping across the finish line to turn two. So that would hold true for a lot of kids and definitely my kids. That's a really hard. But I would have to think back about the second half of the year. That's really interesting. Yeah, it was something that was said to me when I want to say one of my kids was like seven and a half. And just being a jerk uh-huh. all of a sudden. And they said, oh, that always happens. Like, just pay attention. You will always notice in the second half of the year, kids getting worse. And I was like, no. And then I paid attention and I really did notice it. Now, who knows? Maybe I was looking for stuff yeah. that wasn't really there. But I would be interested in hearing from other I'm very people. interested. Yeah. I remember there are some, um, you know, when you have the what to expect when you're expecting and then what to expect the first two years and all or the, first, you know, the toddler years. And then those books kind of drop off. But I remember there are a few parenting books that look at ages and stages and still zoom in on like what's happening with your seven year old, like in chunks. And I yes. there are still there are still, of course, 
uh, developmental things that are happening. It's just, we tend to think of the years as more of like this longer arc after, like you said, after age four or five. Um, But that is, that is so interesting. I mean, there are still developmental things going on in, you know, more incremental ways than maybe we appreciate. That's really. Well, think about how different your third grader is at the beginning of the year. And then after, even after winter break, like they're a different student. They've grown in so many ways. They've learned so much. They've matured. They're bigger. Like everything changes and that it happens like in six month chunks. Yeah. Okay. So So that's a new one. I'm very fascinated. Um, Okay. So the very last one we heard a lot of is actually, I thought of it first and then we heard it echoed from our listeners. And that is this thing you hear with little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. Um, And uh, under that umbrella is anytime somebody says, oh, you think this is hard? Wait till your second baby arrives or wait till you wait till they're teenagers. Um, and so this is more just, I think something that's again, sort of unhelpful to tell someone because your heart is hard, whatever your heart is right right now, it's not my position to tell you it's going to be worse later or that it's somehow isn't as hard as you think it really is. Cause hard is so relative. Like your heart is hard. Um, but I do wonder if you have any thoughts about about this in general or the little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems, any of that? I think where it comes from and is generally true, and this isn't always true because you could have a little kid with cancer. That's a big problem. You could have a little kid who's got a delay or something that's really affecting them and you, and that is something that has to be dealt with, Mm -hmm. you know, or it's going to affect your whole family in major ways. Um, So there's always an exception, but I think what the heart of this is that is true is that most little kid problems on a day-to-day scale are something that are either manageable by the parent or will go away. Yeah. And that changes when they get older. Mm -hmm. You don't have the control. You can't fix it. Mm -hmm. And it will affect them in, if they don't fix it, it will affect them in ways that are more public and more long lasting and like affect their real adult life. And there's just way more pressure. Like, yeah. Everyone expects a three-year-old to throw tantrums, mm-hmm. but if you've got a young adult who's having emotional issues or not doing things the way ever like society thinks they should, or can't seem to like, you know, figure their life out or whatever, it feels different, yeah. I think, than it does partly because people don't talk about it. Yeah. And partly I think just because it's kind of on them to fix it. And if they don't, the results feel more devastating, even if maybe they're not always devastating. So yes. there's some truth. I think there is some truth to that one. I think, I think there is too. And the ages of my oldest kids, I feel like I'm right on the cusp of really seeing this. And so yeah. it's something that I used to hear and kind of just not really understand. It's not that I was offended right. by it. Um, and I think I do understand it at a deeper level. I think the other thing is with little kids, um, the problems don't feel little to you. The problems can right. keep you up at night and make you tear your hair out and want to cry all day, you know, every day. But like you said, Megan, um, it's, there's, there's often a set of actions you can take or some resources you can look into or apply that will feel like you're taking like really concrete steps to address this problem. And I think sometimes with big kid problems, that feels more nebulous. They're more of their own independent people. Like you can't just say like, we're going to try this new behavior system today. I mean, you could, but the older a kid gets, it's more complicated. It it just is more complicated. So I, I feel it. I feel, you know, I feel the truth in that. Um, 
and you know, that doesn't mean we get to say it and like be dismissive of moms. No, with little of kids, course not. But, but it isn't it also true that a lot of the stuff that keeps you up at night when your kids are little is because you're worried about what they'll be like when they're older. Mm-hmm. If you don't figure it out, mm-hmm. that's, you know, you're still looking forward. You're yeah. still looking at what they're going to be when they're 10 or 15 or 20 and thinking, if I don't figure this thing out now, um, we're going to have a real right. problem on our hands, but you're already future casting. Right. Like, yeah. So you're almost creating a big kid problem. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that we all do it. Like, mm-hmm. of course we do. And it's not to be dismissive of it, but often, like we've said many, many times, like it really is going to be okay. And yeah. the problem that seems so big when they're little, it, it feels bigger sometimes than it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are going to wrap there, but this was really, really fun. I'm sure we forgot some myths, but I think we sure. addressed a lot of them. So thanks to everybody who helped us come up with that list. Um, before we wrap, we're really excited to announce that the Mom Hour Podcast Club is going to be available in just a few days. So we I'm mentioned so this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's been a really fun project for us. So what it is, it's a downloadable kit for those of you who want to bring our message and this kind of conversation into your real life community. So when you download it, you're going to get everything you need to host a podcast club night for moms in your home. So this is like a book club gathering, the same idea as a book club, only instead of reading, people can listen to the same episode of our show and come ready to discuss topics around motherhood. So we've prepared it all for you so that you know how to invite people and how to host the party or the get together. And it's going to be really fun. So check it out at themomhour.com slash club. If you head there today and it's not quite ready, just know we are launching in the next few days and we will let everybody know by email. We'll let you know when it's ready. So again, it's themomhour.com slash club. Yes, very excited about that. And we're also excited because all month long, in the spirit of gratitude for Thanksgiving, we're devoting our cue it up segment to thanking some of the people and businesses who help make the show because we are so grateful for them. So today we want to give a huge shout out to Brian Thomas of Yokai Audio. He is our sound engineer and our technical advisor on all things audio. Brian is like the nicest guy. If you are trying to create a podcast and you're getting stuck on trying to make your room sound work for you, or you can't figure out how to use your mic or any of those things, or you just want a good edited produced podcast at the end, definitely get in touch with Brian. He's excellent and he will never make you feel dumb. No, Has he that, ever made us feel dumb? No, that's my favorite thing about him. We love Brian. Also to note, my husband's name is Brian. My husband does not edit our podcast in case that was unclear. <laughs> Sometimes I have had conversations where I just throw out the name Brian and people, um, think it's my husband who edits our podcast. No, Brian Thomas is amazing. And actually, if you stick around to the very end of this show, you'll hear a little chat I had with him and you'll get to know him a little bit more. He's a great dad. He's just an amazing, like an amazing sound engineer. And like you said, Megan, he never makes you feel dumb if you don't understand the technical stuff. So we value that very much. Um, Okay, everyone, we hope you've enjoyed this episode. And just as a reminder, anytime you share our podcast with a friend or share it on social, it helps us so much. So thank you. Thank you for doing that. And we will be back with you next Tuesday with a brand new episode. Talk to you then. Well, hey, it's Sarah again. And I am here with Brian Thomas, who is the owner of Yokai Audio, who makes our show come into your ears every week. I mean, this is an important job. Hey, Brian. Hey, Sarah. So all month long in November, we're kind of shining the light on different people who make the show possible and who we're so grateful for. And I mean, this is a pretty literal one because if you weren't mixing and mastering and editing our show, it would not exist. So thank you, first of all. It's my pleasure.
So I think there's a lot people don't know about sound editing. Um, and so I thought first it would be interesting just to clarify what we mean when we say you're a podcast editor, because even in the podcast industry, that can mean different things. For our show, if Megan and I mess up or my dog barks or the doorbell rings, or if we're recording a sponsored spot and we say the wrong thing 400 times, I actually use a free program called Audacity and I fix those things. So that's kind of like stage one of editing in my right. mind. It doesn't require any knowledge of sound. Um, it just, it's like if you picture, if you were in a word document and you were cutting and pasting things around and deleting <laughs> things, it's sort of the audio equivalent of that. And so I do that. And then I send stuff to you and tell the, tell the people in the layman's terms, what you do from there. Sure. Well, um, so I get your file and then I, um, I do some basic assembly work. Uh, I put together the, um, the intro and, uh, music, uh, cues in the, in the episode. So like the, um, uh, the fade in and mm -hmm. then, uh, peak at the very end. And, um, and then after that, um, I listen really closely to, um, your voices individually. And then I, I, uh, EQ them. I take care of any audio defects that might be there. Like if, and this never happens because you guys are fantastic. But uh, for example, if someone had like a, a refrigerator kick on or, mm -hmm. or something like that, there are ways that I can get rid of that with my software. Um, and then um, once that's done, it's pretty much the episode. Um, the work on the episode itself is done and I can put it into mastering where I, I do uh, tweaks to EQ of the overall episode and so on. And, uh, I compress it to an MP3 file and upload it to our host. Yeah. So all of that makes it sound so that, for example, Megan's voice isn't way louder than mine. You know, we record from two different locations. Neither of us is in a studio and your right. goal is kind of to make it sound like we're two moms sitting next to each other in a studio environment. And of course we're two moms, 2000 miles away in our bedroom and kitchen respectively. Yeah, exactly. Um, have you found that you've learned different, um, different tips and tricks as you've worked with a different amount of podcasters? Cause you've really taken on a lot more podcasting clients in the last, Oh, see, there was a dog leash. We're not going to edit that out. We're going to leave it in because this is real time. <laughs> um, have you, have you learned different approaches since you've worked with podcasters who record in different environments? Well, I think what I found is that the, the initial conversation with the podcaster is really kind of the most important thing because um i i know i've said it to you guys the iron law of recording is that it's always easier to fix it before you hit record mm -hmm. so like when we sit down for that first conversation i i uh, ask the the podcaster what their recording space sounds like what kind of equipment they're going to use or you know maybe i even help them select those things if if they have some options available to them um, and that allows us to get the best possible recording from the very beginning. And so like, that's, that's probably been the the biggest thing that I've learned is, is how to manage those conversations and, um, make sure that, uh, that everybody knows, um, basically what their goals are yeah. <laughs> from the get go. Well, and you, with a background in sound, you're, you're coming in with a higher level of knowledge about simple things about acoustics and things like that. But if you're working with a brand new podcaster, they may not know that carpet and pillows are better than hardwood and windows. Um, right. Would you say it's possible to achieve a good, maybe not perfect, but a good quality podcast sound um, just 
in your home. And even if you're planning on doing your own editing down the road, just by kind of setting the environment correctly from the beginning. Oh, absolutely. I I would say that that is 100% like the, the most impactful and easiest thing that you can do to get quality sound. I mean, um, not uh, there's, (laughs) there's all kinds of different tips I could give, but basically treating the, treating the area, like you were saying, uh, soft surfaces, cloths and, and fabrics and what, and whatnot, um, rather than a lot of hard, flat surfaces like that right there, will put you head and shoulders above the pack, uh, right away. And what's so great about this is that like the barriers to entry are so much lower with recording. I mean, just in general, um, you know, recording audio at all. And then on top of that, podcasting, really all you need is, is a, um, our, our favorite audio technica 2100 USB mic, which costs yep. around 65 bucks on Amazon yep. and a, a laptop and you're good to go. Yep. That's so true. It's Megan and I have a running joke that whenever we speak about podcasting at conferences, no matter what we're talking about, it might be something so unrelated to the tech that someone will always raise their hand and ask, what kind of mic should I buy? And we always laugh because it, it it's like it is one tiny piece of the puzzle, but uh, it is such a small thing in the mm-hmm. grand scheme of things. So, um, yeah, we've got our trusty one that we recommend and I can link that up in the show notes. But it's like that's not even the whole that's not even the conversation for a lot of the time. Oh, um, yeah. Well, I, I wanted to ask, what's your favorite thing about working with podcasters? You've obviously have a, a long history with sound and audio, but podcasting is its its own new thing. So what's your favorite part about working with podcasters? Oh, man, um, there's so many great things to choose from. I, I, I really, I mean, <laughs> um, really, I, I've enjoyed just the the friendships that I've made has been so wonderful. I, I love working with you and Megan and um, and I have several other shows now that I've developed, you know, multi-year relationships with, and, and it's been so great. I, I've, I've kind of, uh, found myself working on a lot of parenting uh, podcasts <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, I think it's cause you guys all go to the same conferences. Yeah. We pass your <laughs> but, business card around. No. <laughs> I appreciate that so much. Um, and that's just been fantastic. I mean, the, the reaction that I've gotten from people has been so wonderful. Um, and plus like, the great thing about doing what I do is that um, I can like demystify some of this for folks that don't come from an audio background. And it's such a, a relief because there, I mean, if you were just to, you know, open a catalog of microphones or whatever, there's stuff that gets crazy expensive in yeah. there. And if you have no idea where you're starting, it would be really easy to get overwhelmed. And I can, I can help folks out and say, no, look, this is super easy. We can just get you this, this one thing. And we're good to go. And it's, it's such a relief for them. Um, so I, I, I really, uh, I'm always happy to provide that. <laughs> yeah, no. And you do it with such a, um, good, non condescending way. And that's really hard in tech. I find tech is similar to like cars. When I take my car in, I'm always just cringing and waiting for the guy to look at me like I'm a dummy. And that can be the same when you get into tech stuff. And, um, it's one of the reasons we've always recommended you so highly is, Um, People can feel bad if they don't understand the tech or if they're struggling and you just, you just have this calming way that it's not like, it's never about the podcasters newness or dumbness or, you know, (laughs) lack of knowledge um, that, that anybody can do this. So that's, and it's, it's always just a couple of simple things, you know, it's, it's never, it's not brain surgery and we can, we can all get there together and 
Nobody has to be upset. It's fine. <laughs> right. And I mean, for any new podcasters out there listening, it's so funny because the most seasoned shows, including those backed by major studios with a lot of resources, everybody has interviews where they forget to turn their mic on or where the sound drops out or where like it's just part of it's just part of it. So I think you kind of help normalize like we're constantly problem solving our audio, but that doesn't mean we're not good podcasters or we're not professionals or whatever. Yeah. And even on my end, I'm always refining my process. I'm always looking at new pieces of software and stuff like that. Like never, ever slow down, never, ever stop learning. It's, it's always, uh, always about improvement. And I mean, you know, that's not to say you don't find something that works and stick with it. Cause that's, that's helpful too. Right. But, um, you know, we're all, we're all learning together. Totally. Is there, if you had to give a piece of advice to a start a brand new startup podcast who maybe didn't have the budget for professional sound editing right away, we talked about uh, setting up your environment, but I was going to add, and if you have anything else, that you can still engage a professional like yourself or somebody that you know to just um, almost hold your hand through that initial setup process. So you do something like an audit, don't you? Um, for yeah. yeah, like talk about that. Talk about what a what a sound audit would be as opposed to engaging you for regular editing. Sure. Um, so usually in that situation, um, like you said, it's it's often an, a new podcaster um, who's who's got some new equipment or, or just some questions about what they should buy. Um, and so what we do is we just walk through kind of every aspect of, of what the recording environment is like from how their, their room is set up to what kind of software they're using, what kind of microphone and all that stuff. We go over how to properly use those things, um, and capture the best possible sound. And that's usually only like a, maybe an hour long, uh, conversation over phone or conference call or something like that. And. And, um, I've had some great successes with that because it's, it is, it's that like initial kind of steep learning curve of, oh no, I've never done any of this before. And just getting kind of over that hump to where it's like, oh, okay, now I know how to, you know, properly turn all of this on and and make a recording. And, and from there, people can either decide to, you know, engage me for further services, or I'm happy to to say thank you at that point. Right. Like, good (laughs) luck. Here's YouTube. Go teach yourself how to use audacity. (laughs) Um, So what I was going to say about that is it's infinitely more affordable to do that proactive work on the front end than to engage a professional to try to fix bad sound or an interview that has an echo throughout where you're like, now you're going through and you're trying to separate out tracks and pull, you know what I mean? So for people who are curious about the budgeting side of things, it's, it's like many things, it's way more affordable to proactively get started on the right foot than it is. It's, I think it's a big misconception people have that you can just fix bad sound. Right. You can't yeah. all the time. We've, we've had it come through and say, we can't do anything with this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like, you know, the, the, uh, the, the cop shows on television where they've got a grainy photograph and they're like yeah. enhanced. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> nothing, nothing works like that. <laughs> right. And well, and that's, and that's true in photography as well, which I dabble in. Like it's really fun to creatively edit photos, but you can't do much with a bad photo. I mean, right. the, the best editing comes from having good natural light and a well-composed photograph. And then, then you can go from good to great. So exactly. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned that you work with a lot of parenting shows, including ours. So I'm, I, you are also a dad yourself. How old are your kids? Um, I have three kids. Uh, they are, let's see, 15, 12, and 12. Okay. Um, and do you ever catch snippets of Megan and me or other parenting shows and are like, these 
ladies do not know what they're talking about. <laughs> or do you ever do you ever have little parenting ahas or are you not even listening to us? I know you listen to us sometimes <laughs> because you will sometimes call us out on the goofy things we say. <laughs> well, um, I am, you know, one of my great interests personally is, is, uh, books and reading. And uh-huh. so, uh, I am a man, those segments that you do with your friend where you're, uh, where you're talking about what you're reading, yeah. what you're reading with your kids. Um, and then the kid literate program, which is coming up, yes. uh, um, those I especially, uh, enjoy because, uh, man, I, I am a voracious reader and I'm always looking for some new things to read, but, um, Man, yeah, I I I do kind of skip around a lot. Yeah. I don't do your <laughs> a job lot of would be a lot harder listening. if you would have to <laughs> listen to every minute of. We we definitely throw a lot of content at you. Well, mm-hmm. um, I know that I do. I do like uh, there's every now and again I'll be I'll just pop into you know a random time slice of the the show to just check something. And uh, you or Megan will be saying something and then I'll find myself 10 minutes later. I haven't touched a button or anything. It's like, oh, yeah, that's not. Wait a minute. OK, back to work. Well, I take that as a huge compliment. And it always kind of makes my day when you call out like you'll, you'll tell us that the episode is finished and then you'll you'll sort of respond back to something we talked about that was funny or goofy. And so I always like that. Well, Brian, tell everybody if they wanted to find more about Yokai Audio or engage your services, mm. where would they go? So um, I am on Facebook. Uh, you can search for me at Yokai Audio, which is Y O K A I. Um, and then I also have a website at yokaiaudio.com. So Y O K A I A U D I O.com. And we cannot um, recommend you highly well, enough. Thank you so Seriously. much. It's, you- it's such a pleasure to work with you guys. And this has been just the absolute most wonderful thing for me. So thank you so much. Of course. Thanks for coming on the show today. You're very welcome. <laughs>